Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I created Optimize Yourself so that I could provide the resources to help creative professionals find fulfillment in their work and love what they do but not at the expense of their health, their relationships, or their sanity. A natural extension of all of this is that we must be valued and respected for the work that we do. Without respect, no matter how much we love our jobs, our careers are not going to be sustainable, and our passion will eventually become indifference, and sometimes even hatred for what we do. We become overworked, disrespected, and burned out. And this is unfortunately what's happening right now to tens of thousands of below-the-line workers in the entertainment industry as clearly portrayed by the meteoric rise of the IA Stories Instagram account. In part because of the horror stories that this account has amplified, the IATSE Union and the AMPTP have come to a standstill in contract negotiations, and the union is asking its members to vote and authorize a strike. This is a historic moment in the union's history, and it is important that all of us understand what is truly at stake beyond the deal points and the percentages. That's why I decided to have an all-hands-on-deck call with my optimizer coaching and mentorship community so I could provide an open forum where both union and non-union members alike could ask their questions, voice their opinions, and gain a better understanding of the true impact that this pending vote and potential strike can have on our industry for literally decades to come. Whether you are in the union or you work freelance outside the union, this conversation will hopefully answer your questions and paint a much clearer picture of why you need to be paying attention to this issue. And by the way, if you haven't already read my latest article, Dear Hollywood, if we don't speak up now, the industry as we know it will never be the same. It is gut check time. And by the way, that's available at optimizeyourself.me slash gut check. I encourage you to check this out as it provides even more context to this timely and important conversation. All right, without further ado, my conversation with the Optimizer Coaching and Mentorship Community. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Zach Arnold. I am the creator of the Optimize Yourself podcast and the coaching and mentorship program. Um, I am also a film and television editor. I am currently editing and associate producing this season of Netflix's Cobra Kai. And today I am very excited to have a community Q&A conversation with a whole host of these students that are in my coaching and mentorship program. And what I love about bringing this community together is that there are union members, there are people in posts, there are people in other areas, and there are non-union members. The reason that it's so important for me to have these different voices from literally all over the world is because the things that we are talking about today, yes, they are union issues and they are union contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they're also human issues. I've been seeing so many conversations and comments now on the IATSE Stories Instagram page. And if you're in the industry and you have a pulse, you have probably heard about it at this point. If you haven't, go to Instagram, search for IATSE Stories. They have been doing an amazing job of highlighting the absolute atrocities that so many people have to bear working in this industry simply for the sake of creating entertainment. There have been a lot of comments from people saying, I'm so glad that somebody is finally bringing this up and talking about work-life balance and the fact that we never have time for exercise or eating well or family. Uh, and I love the fact that they brought it to light, but I, I do have to say, I kind of raised my hand a little bit with a comment. I'm like, um, somebody has been talking about this for a really long time now. I've been on this soapbox for like seven years and I'm really excited that this is now the main conversation. Three years ago when we were dealing with negotiations, it was kind of sort of a little bit of a part of the conversation, but it was almost like a footnote. It was about pension and health contributions and lack of investment and streaming slash new media residuals. All of those things are incredibly important, but work-life balance, turnaround, fraternities, those were kind of like the extra things that maybe we'll bring those up if we can. But now at the center of this argument is work-life balance and the fact that instead of being valued for our contribution to this industry, we are treated as expendable. And this is no longer acceptable, and that is why we are here. However, the fact that we might potentially strike, really, really scary for a lot of people, including myself and people that I know. So I just wanted to have an open forum and conversation today about the strike, try and do my best to answer people's questions, see what some of the issues, see what some of the fears are. Um, I have a feeling this could be a relatively uh, impassioned conversation. Uh, and just for the record, um, I am doing this during my lunch break. When I was doing these community Q&As last year during the pandemic, everybody was unemployed. But like most people on this call and like a lot of people listening, we're still doing our best to balance our work in this industry while also thinking to ourselves, should I really speak up? Like, is, is one of the producers or the showrunner going to think poorly of me? Like, I actually had this conversation during office hours this morning where a student said, I don't, I don't know if I should speak up because I don't know if that means that I'm going to get blacklisted. And a few years ago, during the last negotiations or otherwise, I might have said that's a legitimate concern. But there are so many of us that are speaking up about this now. And frankly, this is no longer about below the line or above the line. It's now including a lot of above the line professions, directors, producers, ADs, and otherwise. They're all saying the same thing. We're tired of the hours too. We're tired of the abuse that it all trickles down from the top. So one thing that I wanna clarify before we dive right into the q and I'm gonna get off my soapbox as soon as possible. As I talk about in my article that I wrote about this most recently, it was called Dear Hollywood, now is the time to speak up. If we don't, the industry as we know it will never be the same. It is time for a gut check. If you are listening or watching this now, you can go to optimizeyourself.me slash gut check, all one word to read it. 
But to reiterate very simply, I'm not here today to talk about, well, we should have 2.75% versus 3.5% for our scale or this for pension and health. This is about how do we make sure that we are valued accordingly as creative professionals and we are not treated as expendable. So I'm not as interested in talking about the minutia of the deal points. It's just more, how do we make sure that we set healthy and realistic boundaries for ourselves, and we no longer get taken advantage of. And this is also one of now six articles that I have in my Dear Hollywood series. And if anybody wants to read uh, any of those others, you can read them at optimizeyourself.me slash Dear Hollywood, uh, one of which uh, people may recognize that went, uh, I don't want to say the word viral technically, but it hit, hit a lot of inboxes and a lot of people's social media pages last summer during the pandemic. It was all about how we don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't working to begin with. And I think this is kind of that whole conversation coming to a head. So on that note, I'm going to stop blathering because this is a community Q&A, not a Zach Arnold stands on his soapbox and rants for an hour, although sometimes that is what it feels like. Um, but I'm going to bring it to the gallery now. And I'm curious who would love to start the discussion with either a comment or a question. Oh, man, Michael Sykowski's hand was just like shot out of a cannon. Michael, get us started. Absolutely. Zach, so as we talked before, I'm I'm not in the union. I work in the South and some right-to-work states and a lot of the stuff I, didn't, I do doesn't have any impact or anything like that. So I think it would be just great to start the conversation off. What does it have to do with somebody like me who's not in this particular fight? I mean, I don't, I don't have a, a real voice in it, I suppose. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about whether or not you have a voice in this fight. I'm going to bring it back to the gallery here for a moment. Show of hands. How many of you are not in the union and technically not a part of this conversation at all? All right. So I was expecting it to be about 50-50. It's about 60-40, 70-30 in favor of union versus non-union. Um, I'm going to, first of all, make it very, very clear to everybody that's on this call and everybody that's listening or viewing, I am not an expert at how contracts are structured. I am not an expert at how unions work. I am just a part of the system that they have created. So if anybody thinks Oli's coming at this as an expert with all the informed viewpoints, I'm making it very clear that I am not. I come at it more from the layperson point of view, boots on the ground, here's how I see it. So I wanna put that out there to say that some of the answers, um, I might not have all the information required to give you an informed decision. But here's my personal belief. I believe that with the way our industry is structured as a whole, and when I say industry, I don't mean Hollywood. I mean the entertainment industry. You said that uh, you are an editor in the South. So do you mind sharing a little bit more, Mike, about what you specifically edit? Yes. Yeah, so some of the content I'm working on right now are, are documentaries for corporate clients. And, uh, yeah, a little editing, a little directing, a little bit of everything, really. So I'm more of a jack of all trades, which is can be a deficit as well, just because of the nature of the, the way the industry is as well. Gotcha. So in general, without having to give away any personal information, how do you set your rate? When somebody says, what's it going to cost you for a week or a month? How do you set that rate? Yeah. So some of it's just been looking at mentors. I think early on, I probably looked at whatever the editor rate was to try to get a better idea. I mean, I know when I was a lot younger, it was just whatever I felt like I could feed myself with. So, yeah. So the, the point is that you had a baseline that you had to look at elsewhere, right? I remember when I first started out, I'm like, I don't know what an editor makes. Do they make $10 a week or a million dollars a week? I don't know. Right. But there's always a baseline that's set. And the baseline that is often set, not always, I'm not saying it's the holy grail or the gospel, but one of the common baselines that's set is union scale, whether that's for editors, whether that's for union editors. So if you said, for example, I demand $10,000 a week to edit your non-union corporate documentaries, you're going to get laughed out of the room because they're going to say, 
Union Hollywood editors don't even make that much, right? It's a baseline. So right now, through collective bargaining power, there is a baseline rate for what editors, assistant editors, music editors, grips, gaffers, designers, everybody that's part of IATSE, there is a baseline rate. And I know that for some tiered contracts, there's a bunch of loopholes. Again, not an expert on any of this and not going to pretend to be. But in general, there is a baseline rate for a lot of professions. If we no longer have the collective bargaining power to bargain for what we are worth, do you think that will probably trickle down to you eventually? Yeah, I could see that. So let's say that Hollywood, starting at the the top, and I'm not saying the best, but just kind of starting at the top of the food chain as far as entertainment is concerned. All of a sudden, because there are no more union regulations, because we've decided that we want to vote no and we don't have the collective bargaining power, whether it's in six weeks or 10 years, all of a sudden, Hollywood's like, you know what? There's this really talented guy that I found on Fiverr.com. And they can start editing their TV shows for 500 bucks a week. Do you think that's going to increase your value or decrease your value as a non-union documentary editor in the corporate world? It's really see that uh, decreasing my value for sure. It's definitely going to. So again, I know that, uh, and just for a point of reference, uh, my hope is that there are going to be a lot of people listening to this and watching it that are not in post-production at all. But my community is post people. So we're going to talk a lot about editing, but this is going to apply to so many other crafts. So it doesn't really matter what the below the line craft is. And I actually believe that this can trickle to other uh, guilds as well in other unions. Um, but if we devalue the rate that people have on a daily rate, on a weekly rate, whatever it might be, if we devalue it at the union level, it's going to trickle down to everybody that's non-union because this is where the baseline is set. So again, there's no way to, to verify this because this is kind of an unprecedented situation. This is only my opinion, but I feel very strongly about this opinion that if we are devalued, everyone else is going to be devalued accordingly. And it's not going to happen overnight, but boy, is it going to happen. This is going to be a race to the bottom really fast if we don't get this figured out now. Ah, Mike Stavala. Yes, sir. And then Sean, you are next. To just add a quick little thing. What's very different about this time around is we're not just talking about, you know, increased uh, raise or this or that or no Fridays, that sort of thing. I think we're really talking about a sea change about how production and post-production is done because we've, I'll say the word devolved to a point where, you know, 14 hour days are standard procedure, six, seven day weeks are standard procedure. And that just needs to stop. And so that's what it's more about. This is not just a typical contract negotiation where this is like literally a sea change for the industry that we're fighting for here. I could not agree more. And this is something that I wrote about last year in one of my Dear Hollywood series where I had actually brought up the idea of a nine-hour workday and a 45-hour workweek, which, by the way, as a side note, I was eviscerated for, not by producers or studios or corporate conglomerates, by the people within our own union that are clutching their golden time on their overtime. But that's another conversation. What I, I, I believe what you're saying about this being a sea change, and I just want to bring up the absurdity of this for a second. We are fighting for a 12-hour workday. We're going to consider a 12-hour workday a win. Can we just talk about for a second how ridiculous this is? That says it all right there. Right? Just think about the amount of psychological conditioning it requires over not weeks or years, but decades for us to believe that we should be allowed to work 12 hours a day. This should be a conversation for 10 hours is absurd. 
But we're saying, oh, please, please, sir, can we only work 12 hours a day? Like the absurdity of this just makes me so angry that we've gotten here and we're going to consider that a win. And guess what? For now, that may be the win that we're going to have to build off of going forwards. But that's the point of conditioning that we have gotten to to believe that we win if we get a 12-hour day. Like It's just – it's beyond absurd. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you pointed that out. Um, bringing it back to the gallery, um, who else would like to chime in? And by the way, one thing I want to point out to uh, everybody that's here today and also point out to those that are listening or viewing, you're allowed to disagree with me. This is not, hey, let's create an echo chamber of people that agree with everything I'm saying. If I'm saying something you disagree with, bring it up. Let's talk about it because if you disagree with it, other people disagree with it. So this is an open discourse on both sides of the argument. I had uh, said that Sean could ask a question. Yeah, we, uh, it was actually about non-union because I work also in the Southeast, uh, non-union on the production side. So I can at least add context for that in general. Um, and I do think, especially in production work, our rates are very heavily dependent on what California and New York's union-based rules go. And it also goes for just like overtime rules because the producers here like to try to get around those a lot on non-union work. And you have to kind of be like, hey, this is not how we could do it in California or in New York. And it helps a lot to have standardized rules that we can kind of lean on and be like, this is not either not legal or not ethical to do this. So we really, we really need those standards. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And just for a little bit of context, I know that uh, most of the people on this call already know this and you guys know most of my story. And some of you heard it ad nauseum incessantly over and over and over. But for anybody that is not familiar, very briefly to give you context, I know it's very simple to think, oh, well, it's easy to talk about all this stuff. You work on a big Netflix show and you're in the union and you work with people that value you. Like to be very, very clear, if this were my vote to vote selfishly, I would emphatically vote no. I love the people that I work with. I'm treated with respect all the way from the top studio executive all the way down to directors, producers, showrunners, and otherwise. But I spent years of my career, almost a decade in the non-union feature world. And the, all, the conversation always started with, if this were a union show, what would the base rate be? All right, it's non-union now. Obviously, I have to advocate for myself and decide what I'm worth. And everything was you know, way lower than the union rates. But the conversation always starts there. So it just kind of reiterates and brings us back to the same point that this is not just about people that are currently under some basic agreement with this one loophole and this other loophole and it doesn't affect everybody else. Um, like Mike said, this is a sea change about the way that we decide to advocate for ourselves and our boundaries and our values. Oh, Mike Hickey. Uh, did you want to uh, to chime in? Yes, I'd love to chime in. So Zach knows me well, and I, I kind of wanted to give a perspective for, from my side to kind of help you guys out uh, as union you know, editors. Uh, Zach knows, and he's gone through my resume about seven or eight times. Uh, Was that all? Are you sure? <laughs> it might have been more. <laughs> uh, worked for NBC. First 10 years of my career was a union, a union called IBW. Next six years of my career, I worked for CBS for IATSE. We had a similar thing happen. They are, yeah, I would call them stewards. And then the main people on my side on the East Coast asked us for the strike vote. Everyone was very worried. All videographers, editors, people, certain uh, technical directors. And it was a hard vote. It's a hard term I'm going to use, but it made sense to me. It was, look, they're not going anywhere. They keep taking everything away from you. You need more days off. You need more of this. You know, you, 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 know, you deserve it. And the way technology is moving, you're just tough on stuff. So it was, hey, we need you to vote yes because we just need a bullet because they're not moving on the negotiation table. It's a tough analogy, 
but I just wanted to give you that sack and, and let you know I'm supporting you from the East Coast. And I hope that helps an analogy wise. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, not only does it make sense, I've actually used the the exact same analogy and you're right. It's not the, the best one. And it's certainly given, you know, things going on in our culture and our country right now, you know, maybe not the best one to use, but I do agree that uh, if, if instead of using the word bullets, use the word ammunition right now, we're getting ready for a Mexican standoff. But the other side is saying, you don't have any ammunition. <laughs> sure. We'll fight you. Right. So then this is a really brings up what I think is the most important point of my article. And I think it's a point that's really being missed by a lot of people right now. Our battle or our fight or whatever you want to call it isn't with the producers or the multimedia, you know, global corporations, because if we don't get a vote, the fight's done. It's over. So right now, if we're going to speak up and we're going to start a really important conversation, it's all of the people that are within the union that are thinking of voting no because they want to protect our current way of life. They're the ones that want and advocate for the long hours and the meal penalties and the overtime because that's what pads their paychecks, right? And I'm not saying that they're bad people for doing that, but what they're not realizing is the effect that that's having on so many people. It's literally creating a work environment where people are dying. Like we're literally dropping like flies and dying. And for those of you, even myself included, I thought that all of these horror stories were just, we had heard them and I believed in them, but they were kind of anomalies. Just spend five minutes scanning through IATSE stories on Instagram. It's just like, oh my God, I had no idea that it was this bad. Uh, I knew it was bad because my inbox for seven years has looked like the stories that they're sharing. I haven't got nearly as frequently, um, but I've certainly had many conversations like this with very high level people. Uh, I'm not gonna name this person's name, um, but I remember it was like five or six years ago. This is back when I had just started fitness and posts. Um, so I wasn't even really doing the coaching and mentorship thing yet. And I had dinner with somebody that worked on, let's just say, you know, one of the, one of the top 10 movies ever created box office wise. We're talking a big, big project. And they told me that they got to the point where when they would drive home at night, they would think about how can I run my car off the road? Not because I want to die, but I just I, like, maybe if I could break both of my legs, that would give me a reason to not have to go into work tomorrow. And that was a shock to my system. I could not believe that somebody at that level was being treated that way and they were thinking that way about their job because you would see this person on the outside. And again, don't want to name any names or projects because it would be very simple to figure out who this person is. Um, but you would look at them and put them on a pedestal and say, you've made it. Like how amazing we all aspire to be you. And all this person thought about at the end of every workday was how do I break both of my legs so I don't have to go back? And now we're seeing that that's, kind of the rule and no longer the exception, which is terrifying. So on that note, I want to bring it back to the group again, to our community. And uh, Barry, your hand is up. What would you like to share or ask? Well, I wanted to add that um, there's a lot of people that think that like, if you vote yes on this, that we're going on strike right away. It's not that. It's just a vote to authorize IOTSE to, to use it as that tool in their toolbox as leverage to help us get what we are asking for. Thank you. That was bringing my point back full circle. And I totally went off on a tangent telling a story, but thank you. That's exactly where I was hoping to go. You're like an extension of my brain at this point. Uh, I both thank you and feel sorry for you. Um, but the point being that, yes, for a lot of people that are misinformed, I actually saw a post today in one of the, the Facebook groups for editors that said, well, now that we're on strike, I'm like, oh, crap. 
we got a lot of work to do because people think we're already on strike. Not only are we not on strike, we haven't even authorized a strike vote. But if anything is ever going to change, the vote has to be yes. If the vote is no, the fight is over. Then the producers not only say, you know what, here's your old contract. They're going to say all that stuff you got three years ago, <laughs> it's all gone. And they're already doing that. That is their main negotiating tactic. They're not just trying to find a middle ground. They're taking things away. And again, without going into all the minutiae and deal points, the one that people are really talking about more than anything is the removal of uh, lunches. It's like, yeah, no, well, we're just going to do these rolling lunches. You know, if, if you guys don't want to play ball, then yeah, we'll just take them away. And what that's doing is this creating fear in people. And it's actually a really, really smart negotiating tactic. So I'm not saying I agree with them, but it's really smart because what happens is it makes people think, well, if we're fighting for more and they're going to take away what we already have, oh, I, I give up. Like, I just I don't want to lose our lunches. So let's just vote no. So things can go back to normal. That's the fear that's being created right now. And there's also a lot of misinformation about the vote means you're immediately out of work. All it means is, like Mike said, we are giving ourselves ammunition, so this is a fair fight. That's all that it is. So I'm very, very glad, uh, Barry, that you brought that up to help me clarify. Mitch Rosen. Yes, sir. Hi there. I'll play my usual pessimist role a little bit, and I'll give you an opportunity to discuss. And a lot of people probably don't understand the uh, makeup of IATSE. It's not just one organization. It's actually 13 different locals that are bargaining collectively for this deal. And if past history tells us anything, we don't do a very good job in the negotiating room. I think it's probably one of the tactics of producers is to break down a handful of locals that either aren't in solidarity with everybody else or are looking for different things. Usually that's what has happened in negotiations in the past, that we wind up not getting what we're looking for because our house of cards inevitably comes crashing down. So how can we avoid those uh, mistakes from happening this time around? My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, 
it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yes, that is a really, really good point. And it gives a little bit more context for anybody that's not as familiar with how this is organized. Again, my disclaimer for the 12th time, not an expert on unions and not an expert on negotiations or the structure of all of this. I'm just a guy that's got Google like everybody else here. But yes, IATSE is kind of an umbrella union that has a whole bunch of other guilds under it. We as the Editor's Guild, because uh, just to give a little bit of context, you two, uh, like many of the people on this call, are in post. Um, you're an editor and assistant editor on the feature side. So we have the Editor's Guild, the Motion Picture Editors Guild Local 700. This isn't about our needs as editors. There are other guilds, like you said, we have the, the costume designers and we have the directors of photography, gaffers, grips. I don't know all the specific locals and their technical names, but it's essentially all the major below the line workers that are in the union. And in the past, what's happened, specifically three years ago, what happened is that we as the Editors Guild were all saying the same things that everybody's saying now and all the other crafts and guilds and everybody else said, oh, those, those editors with their air conditioning and they're not on set. They don't get it, right? And what ended up happening is we were divided because of that. And I think a lot of that was a very calculated strategy by the producers to plant specific conversations to pit us against each other. Um, the best analogy that I can give that I read about had nothing to do with the, the strike or the negotiations, but it was an analogy that I read just about the political divisiveness that we have in our country right now. If you take a jar and you fill it with 50% red ants and 50% black ants, nothing happens. You take the jar and you shake it and they will murder each other to death. Everybody's worried about the black side or the red side. We need to be worried about who is shaking the jar, right? That's the thing to focus on. And I think the difference in this negotiation versus the others is we are all on the same page. Right. There was so much divisiveness, like I'm not going to go into all the politics of it. But, for example, uh, the president of IATSE, Matt Loeb, um, I'm not, am I saying his name correctly? Um, so Matt Loeb, um, he was in a fight with Kathy Rapola, who is the leader of the editor's guild. There was so much infighting and divisiveness. And I mean, the, the way that she was treated was very disrespectful. And I have so much respect for her for the fact that she can come back and fight with them as adversaries. But that's the difference this time. I'm not seeing any of that. And again, I'm not in the negotiating room. I don't actually know what's happening on the front lines, but having been on the call with Kathy where she shared what was going on and following the other guilds, I don't feel any divisiveness this time. And I could be wrong. I don't know what the vote's going to look like, but I'm not feeling or reading any divisiveness. It really feels like we're a unified front across all the guilds or at least the, the major guilds that are getting the press. So I don't know if you're feeling the same way or if other people are, but that is what I think, like uh, Mike Stavala said earlier, is the sea change that we are experiencing. Whereas before it was about, oh, the editors, they don't need the kind of turnaround that we do. Like there was so much of that that was happening that, again, somebody was shaking the jar to make that happen, but it's not working this time. And I really feel like the unified front is all about we as human beings deserve to be respected for what we bring to the table and we are being treated as expendable. 
I really feel like that's become the conversation, which it finally needs to become. So I don't know if that gives you just the slightest bit of hope, but for the first time, I'm actually hopeful because three years ago, I could tell you blatantly, I'm like, I'm going to vote yes, but it's useless. Total, it's a total waste of my time to vote yes because I know that we're going to get the contract and we're going to suck it up and we're going to eat it. I'm actually very, very cautiously optimistic this is going to go through this time because there's just something different in the air. But the only way it happens is if we all make sure, number one, that we get out there and vote our voice. And if somebody on this call wants to vote no, vote no. I'm not going to tell you what you have to vote. I think everybody should exercise that right in either direction. But I think people at least need to get out there and share their voice. But I really feel the sea change happening where I feel like it's a much more unified front where cinematographers and grips and editors and everybody's coming together. And I think a large reason that we're seeing that is because of the IATSE Stories uh, Instagram page, because we realize we're all in the same trenches at the same time. doesn't matter what our, what our craft is. Um, so that, that, that's kind of my feeling that I, I feel that I feel that there's something different this time and we have a chance. But to go back to your other question, what can we do about it? I think it's about we need to get out of our echo chambers in Facebook. Like, you know, let's for our world, most of the people that are in here, the Editors Guild Facebook page. Screaming at the top of your lungs at the Editors Guild Facebook page that we need to vote yes. Not a bad thing, but it's kind of a waste of time. You're preaching to the choir. It's getting to the other guilds, other people that you work with and letting them know what's going on and spreading this message far beyond the guilds that already believe that, uh, that we need to do this. So do I know how to reach every single person or every single guild? Absolutely not. But that's kind of sort of why I'm writing the articles and why we're doing this call is I don't want this to be, this is what the editor's guild think. It's, here's what we as human beings and creative professionals working in the entertainment industry believe to be true. And anybody that's listening or watching, they share it with other people. And you realize that if you have believed this too for years and you felt kind of ashamed or afraid to bring it up, because for years I would kind of sit in my dark room and be like, why are they treating us this way? And why, why can't I go out and take a walk for half an hour? Like that used to terrify me to bring any of that up. Clearly, I'm not scared to bring these things up anymore in the public discourse, but a lot of people still are. Seeing a call like this and sharing it with people not inside the echo chamber, that's where I think the difference is made. Do we have anybody here, and I already know the answer to this, but do we have anybody here that's not in post that can share a perspective from the front lines on set? Uh, Jonathan, yes, sir. Good to see you again, by the way. It's been a while. I just wanted to clarify for people that might not understand when we say producers, we're talking about the majors. We're talking about Paramount and Sony and Universal. We're not talking about your post producer, who's probably, frankly, probably behind us, you know, but can't probably say a whole lot. And then also, I wanted to say that there is a petition for those of you who aren't in uh, the guild. There's a petition going around on actionnetwork.org slash petitions slash tell AMTP to make a deal with behind the scenes workers. So you can, there's already 45,000 people who signed this petition. Wow. That's amazing. That, and that's great. Cause that is beyond just the people that work in the union and are active paying voting members. That's just 45,000 people saying, Hey, they're human beings. 
right? Or we are human beings, right? Um, so that's great. I'm gonna make sure that in everything that we share, show notes, social media posts, otherwise, that is awesome. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I'm gonna make sure that we have a link to that petition, but I'm also glad you brought up this clarification. The fact that when we put producers in quotes, you're right, it's not the producer down the hall, the story producer, the co-producer that's running post-production. Uh, it's not even the line producer that's on set. Um, we're talking about the major conglomerates, the Netflixes and the Foxes and the Disneys, and the, well, actually Fox and Disney are now the same thing because they're all the same thing because just one person owns all of it. Um, but the point being that this is another area where it kind of becomes us versus them. Oh, we're below the line and we're against the above the line of the producers, but it really isn't. Um, I've talked to multiple producers. I've talked to showrunners. I've talked to directors. They all say the same thing. We're tired of the hours too. We don't want to work this way. But because the budgets and the schedules and the expectations trickle down from the top, in order for them to keep their jobs, they need to make sure that everybody's able to meet these specific expectations. Some of them do it with a smile on their face. Many of them do it begrudgingly. But yes, to clarify, this is not about us versus the producers down the hall. This is about the multimedia conglomerates that see us as expendable widgets that don't that basically say, like I've talked about in my article and many times before, that when we complain to them that everyone is dropping like flies, all right, just get more flies. What's the big deal? Right. And the whole point of this conversation is to not have any more flies. Nobody left that's willing to accept the way that we work as acceptable. So I'm very glad you brought that up, Jonathan. That's a point that I probably should have brought up earlier when I was using that term. I've just I've been writing about this so much. Like it's just all all the terms are going in circles in my head at this point. Um, so that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. What I would also like to know is, do we have anybody here that isn't even in the United States that's thinking like, why should I care? Like I'm not. Oh, there's a hand that went up. I know we've got a couple more, but uh, Nick Montgomery. Share with us your viewpoint on all this, uh, you know, looking over the border, so to speak. Yeah. Hi, all. Uh, yeah, I'm union, but I'm Canadian. So uh, more kind of eavesdropping here, but also because uh, I'm wondering if this is a similar situation that uh, we're going to find ourselves in in the near future. So I'm really eager to see how this all unfolds you know, for, uh, for you guys uh, just south of us. But one thing I wanted to kind of ask about, I know that it's, you know, it's come up in conversation before that here where some people would ask, well, would you sacrifice, uh, like you can negotiate, it may be possible to eventually negotiate for not a standard 12 hour day, but you know, that means that, that means changes that, you know, it affects your rate primarily, you know, it affects other things, but primarily it affects your rate and your paycheck. And are you willing to sacrifice that? And that's where. I've heard some people, you know, walk back, but hmm, hold on a sec. I like my paycheck. Never mind. So I'm actually kind of curious how people feel about that, knowing that, yeah, there's a little bit of reality in that you can, if you try to negotiate for a uh, a non 12 hour standard day, just know that means yeah. there are uh, there's an effect to that, and that you know primarily will mean less pay. And are you willing to be okay with that? Because that is kind of like a give and take. That's a, a natural give and take that's going to come from the negotiation for that. So I'm kind of curious how people feel about that, that result that would come from that. Yeah, I, I would agree that this is a huge point of the conversation. And for anybody that's unable to view, uh, they don't realize the brilliance of the image I'm looking at right now, which is an editor working from home, literally with a baby Bjorn rocking his newborn child while working on a community Q&A call. If this isn't just the perfect encapsulation of why we're having this conversation, I don't know what is. Um, but yes, let, let's bring up the very, very controversial subject of the paycheck. 
because this is really, at least right now, not big picture. If we're talking about the war, the battle that we're looking at is internally, at the end of the day, if we get a no vote, the majority of the no votes are going to be the people in, I believe, one of two camps. And again, I'm not on the front lines and all the various guilds. I don't hear all the conversations. But in general, from the messages that I've received, the conversations that I've had, we have two general groups of people that I believe are going to vote no. One, other people that are terrified that they're not going to get a paycheck because they're living paycheck to paycheck because that's the way the industry is structured and they have no other choice and the cost of living is ridiculously high and they're getting paid, I'm just going to say it, complete wages. Those people have a really legitimate fear and I feel so much compassion for them and I'm not sure what the answer even is. All I know is that things are only going to get monumentally worse if we don't do something now. But then there's the other camp of people that have come to accept and embrace the fact that in order for them to have the lifestyles that they've created and all the extra money, they needed to keep coming in. There's a term that's called lifestyle creep. This is something that so many people experience, and it's kind of the American way that you you get all the things that you want, you have some debt, then all of a sudden you maybe get a better job or a promotion. So you buy more stuff, then you buy more stuff, then you have more debt, and then you find yourself with the golden handcuffs. I'm making really good money, but if I make even $200 a week less, I can't afford the lifestyle that I've created. But frankly, and I'm not going to make rash judgments about everybody, but in some people's cases, they made irresponsible choices about their lifestyle. So I feel so much tremendous compassion for the people that have been put in the position where they have to side with us and collectively bargain and be a part of this conversation, knowing they don't even know how they're going to pay their rent in two weeks because they've been treated like such garbage. However, I have a lot less compassion for people that are saying, I love my 80 hour weeks. Are you kidding? Like such a fat paycheck. I'm not giving that up for these losers that chose this industry that didn't know what they were getting into. They should just stop whining and quit and they should just work a nine to five job. And if anybody thinks I'm being facetious, go to my article. You're going to see all of those comments directed at me personally about the things that I've written. I have been viciously attacked about my viewpoints on work-life balance. So I know that these are not quotes that I've made up. They are screenshot person for person, all anonymous because I don't want to call people out. Um, but I've been hearing this for years. Those are ultimately the people that are going to help us decide whether or not this goes through or whether it doesn't go through. But I don't think that at least for the people in that camp, the camp of the ones that just want to keep their overtime and their golden time and they don't care what happens to everybody else as long as their money keeps coming in, we're not going to convince them to vote otherwise. It's the undecideds. And it's the people that don't feel like they're being supported that are in a position where they're terrified and not have a check. So one of the things that I want to put forwards, and I have no idea how something like this works. I don't know if something like this already exists. I wouldn't know how to create it. And frankly, it's not something that um, I would take on myself. But if it doesn't already exist, if there is some form of either a strike vote or an actual strike, I think IATSE needs to put together some form of a fund where we can contribute money to it and we can help pay the salaries of the people that literally live paycheck to paycheck, not by choice. I have no interest in helping somebody finance their jet ski during the strike. But if there's somebody that literally cannot pay their rent, I think that we should all come together and we should find some way to help them. I don't have the logistics or infrastructure to even begin to know how something like that works. Um, but what I will say unequivocally, and I'm going to put this on the recording in front of everybody here, if there is something like that, I personally am going to put $1,000 into that fund. If that can have one person cover one week's paycheck so we can have those five days 
to negotiate and get what we need to make their lives better for years to come, I am all in. I don't know how to make it happen, but that's where I stand on that personally. Um, so Barry, your hand went up. I saw something. It was either in the the Editors Guild Facebook group or in an email from the Editors Guild that they were considering working on some things to help people. I'm not sure if it's a money thing or if it's like, you know, other things that they did maybe during COVID or whatever. Um, but I've I've heard through the grapevine that I think there's going to be some sort of help for people. Well, I'm all in to contribute to that. And here's why I think it's so important that this needs to happen now. Not that the funds are actually available, but I think we need to make it as clear and as make it as clear as possible, as quickly as possible, that something like this is in the works. Because I know that if I were working close to minimum wage and I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent and I don't have somebody in my family or friends or otherwise that can help me through it, I'm going to vote no. Even if I believe in everything, I'm going to vote no because I'm just too scared to vote otherwise. But if I know that support is coming and I know that there are people that have done much better than I have in this industry that are there to support me, that might sway my vote to a yes because I know that people have my back. I honestly think that's where a lot of the effort needs to go is letting people know that are honestly in a position where they want to vote yes with their heart, but they can't. They need to know they have our support. That's where I think the difference happens because we're not going to convince the people that just want the 90 hours a week and they enjoy that lifestyle because it pads their pension and health and their paychecks. They're never going to vote yes. And again, that's a personal choice. I'm going to try and make as little judgment about it as possible, but I at least want them to think about the effect it has on everybody. But at the end of the day, I just don't think that it makes a whole lot of sense to try and convince them. It's the undecideds that are terrified to vote yes because they can't afford it. I think that's where the support needs to go, at least for now. Like I said, it's a battle versus a war. Ultimately, this is about us being devalued by the people that hire us. But that conversation goes away if we don't get the yes vote. So that's my own personal opinion about where I think our uh, attention needs to be directed. Uh, and Barry, your hand went up again. Yes, um, I actually found the email that has the info. But is that the guild sending out something about IATSE at large or just for editors guild members? Well, it's just it's just an important message about the strike authorization vote from MPEG business. Got it. Um, well, th this is uh, one of the messages that I think we need to get out in a conversation that we need to start if it hasn't already started. Maybe something like this already exists and I'm unaware of it because I'm not on any boards, I'm not in any of the rooms. Um, but I really feel if we're gonna make the difference, it's about giving the people that are terrified of voting yes, some support knowing that we're gonna back them up in any way that we can. So Ricardo and then Annie next, because I saw your hand, it went up. But uh, Ricardo, everybody's, uh, opinion in this room is valuable. However, you have a very unique perspective on this and probably a lot more background in this conversation than even I do. Uh, so give us just a little bit of background and who you are, what you do, where you are, and how you are involved with this conversation. Sure. Um, my name is, yes, I'm Ricardo Vettelupo. I'm from the UK. So I was very interested to listen into this very US-centric strike-related action, primarily because I'm the post-secretary for the uh, post-branch in the UK. Uh, in the UK union called BEC2. And um, obviously a lot of your shows are coming over to the UK and, and shooting and doing post over here as well. So there's definitely some cross-pollination. And I did a webinar with Zach last August during the pandemic where <clears throat> we talked about a lot of these issues with work-life balance and how to be healthy and post and so on and so on. So I had just a couple of things to say and ask, specifically relating to helping people that you were talking on there. Then um, just as amusing, I wondered if you guys had spoken at all or reached out to John August and Craig Mason, who have been very vocal from a writing side about helping assistants and helping PAs and people when they've been 
talking about writers striking and, you know, the writer's perspective on all of this, because there's definitely some shared thoughts and feelings there. And, and those guys do a podcast called Script Notes, which I listen to religiously every week. And they are not uh, scared to put their you know point of view forward. And they're really uh, doing some great work to help further the cause for, for the writing side of things and also helping writers come in. So maybe they've got some ideas as well the cross union pollination i don't know how it works exactly you know politically out there with different union guilds talking to each other and stuff but i'm assuming that there's co-collaboration going on in relation to the issue and the strike then you guys definitely feel like you're more organized than we are over here and further ahead with this kind of stuff getting to the point where you can strike even though um or, or considering the option to strike as a bargaining tool it's been it's been used over here in other departments um i don't think posters at that point yet over here but I'm listening in and more feedback to my people and my my union and my committee collaborators as well with, with what I've been hearing from you. The thing I wanted to ask about was the bigger issue for me that I've seen in, oh, I've been doing this for 10 years, sorry, I should contextualize my work as well for, for people who don't know. I'm, I'm primarily a features assistant editor who's now moved into kind of that transitional period between assisting and editing. I've worked mostly on studio features, so I've seen the whole spectrum of good and bad behavior across the, the boards and across the departments and across the, the, the films that I've worked on um, as well. And the thing I wanted to just maybe stimulate a little discussion on is project management, because I feel like so many of us below the line workers have this, this belief and this position about our rights and you know how we should be working and how we should be treated fairly, but we're not supported by people, perhaps above us, who are in control of our hours to a certain extent, in control of our salaries. And I'm seeing a continuous problem over the last decade of people who haven't necessarily learned how to project manage properly, which includes leading a team, which includes looking after your team. And I just wonder what people thought, yourself, Zach, the others about that in relation to how do we, because part of the battle is trying to educate and trying to make people realize that until we're learning how to project manage properly, which is, I think, a big issue for the film industry, because it's it's very open with how it lets people in and work and come and it's full of passionate people and it's amazing opportunity. but it's also very loose, very lax. And that's what leads to a lot of the exploitation that we've probably all seen and, and experienced. And perhaps if there was some more structure and rigidity with project management training and, and standardization of this stuff, then it would lead to better outcomes with this kind of stuff. Just point for thought. I could not agree with all of that more. Uh, as soon as you said project management, a bunch of bells and whistles, of course, went off in my head because anybody that's in this community knows what a productivity and project management nerd I am, none of which I'm going to get into now. Uh, first of all, uh, Ricardo, I love uh, your level of humility where you're like, yeah, I've, I've worked on um, you know features in TV. Um, Ricardo has worked on some of the biggest, most successful feature films of all time. He's been in the trenches and then some on some really, really, really big stuff. And uh, without going into details. I've talked to you and your fellow editor and other people in that circle about just the, the absolute hell that you've gone through to deliver. And I really believe this is something I've talked about on a whole lot of podcasts. So my students are going to be like, oh my God, here he goes again. But for those that may be new to this community or the things that we talk about, I believe the root cause of burnout is setting improper expectations. That can take a thousand different viewpoints, but it all comes down to setting improper expectations that are not met that cause tremendous friction. 
And I too believe, and I've just been appalled, the higher that I've climbed myself in the industry, the complete lack of any formal knowledge in both project management and team leadership. The way that our industry is structured, where we have all independent freelancers that go from job to job, there is no incentive whatsoever to actually become better at what you do as a leader or a collaborator, because the only worth that you have, the only reason you're going to be hired back is, did you meet all of the unrealistic expectations on your previous show successfully? Great. Are you willing to do it again? That's the conversation. If we had a full-time corporate structure, like if we talk about the companies that, uh, you know, were, I, don't, I hate using the word against, but if we talk about the companies that we're negotiating with, the Disney's, the Netflix's, the, all these other companies, they have corporate structures where people get leadership training and project management training and they have HR departments. They have protection. They have a long-term viable future where you can start in the mailroom and prove yourself and learn things and grow and climb the corporate ladder. In our world, we're just these expendable widgets where, all right, well, were you able to survive the previous show? Great. You want to come survive ours? And if you can't, all right, well, there's a hundred other people that are probably willing to go through that anyways. But I have yet to meet maybe one. I've had one or two producers that actually had some formal training and understanding the psychology of leadership, understanding project management. And it wasn't just a matter of, well, I started as a PA. And then the uh, supervisor taught me how to be a supervisor. And then the supervisor taught me how to be an associate producer. And then the associate producer taught me how to be a producer. All right. That doesn't mean that you're getting better at anything. It just means you're acquiring knowledge from other people that don't really understand how leadership works. And this is a conversation I've had with um, other students and people on social media where they've reached out and said, I want to change this. Where can I learn about leadership? What are the books? What are the courses? Um, so I think that slowly we're starting to recognize how detrimental this is. But the one thing I want people to consider, and again, this might not be the most popular viewpoint, but as I tell my students all the time, you need to crawl into the brain of the person that you're dealing with and understand the world from their perspective. The producer that you're working with in your department that's driving you crazy, that's telling you there is no more time, there is no more money, we have to hit these deadlines, they have a boss too. And their boss is saying, why can't your team get this done on time within the budget? There's a word called breakage. And breakage basically means going from the pattern budget and needing more because of whatever reason, X, Y, or Z. There cannot be any breakage. So the person above you that's pushing you is getting pushed by somebody else, is getting pushed by somebody else, is getting pushed by somebody else. So basically, it rolls downhill. Guess who's at the bottom? Below the line, people are the ones at the bottom, but it's not necessarily the person right above you that you think is making your life hell. It's only because somebody is making their life hell is making somebody their life hell, which is why in this negotiation, we're resetting the expectation from the top down. My guess is that a lot of the producers that, uh, and when I say producers, I'm talking about the producers in the room or the ones across the hall, the ones that we work with every day. If you have one that's driving you crazy, I have a feeling they hate their job as much as you hate the way they do their job because somebody else is making them crazy. So it's, I'm not saying it excuses the behavior or the lack of um, understanding of team dynamics or the lack of understanding of project management, but it's systemic. It's just something about the way that our system is built and it goes to above the line, goes across below the line. Like this is an issue that if we were just going to start over, this needs to be fixed from square one. I don't necessarily know what the answer is other than I take it upon myself personally and I've taken it upon myself to help other people learn how they can better project manage themselves. Because I believe that if you don't want to be micromanaged, you need to learn how to micromanage yourself. 
Is that going to be the solution across the board? No, I think that the whole system needs to change. But at least right now, I think the one thing we can take control of individually is the fact that we are better at project managing ourselves, which allows us to set more clear boundaries and set clear expectations. Um, so I don't know if that's fully an answer to your question, but it's just it's my perspective on all this. And I agree with everything you're saying completely. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. The, the interesting thing for me about all of this is that having done this for 10 years as well, then the onus is completely on us to push back on, on our team to bond with us and to push back with us firstly to talk about it. And then on us to talk to our immediate manager and supervisor, be that our post supervisor, be that our editor. And, uh, you know, the issue, of course, is how do we get beyond that? Because the people setting these schedules are not really that post supervisor. They may, may not even be the, the show producer. It, your, your point about the HR and the corporate systems was interesting to me because the, although that sounds good in principle, the schedules and the release dates come from them. So the top point where the problem is being created is the detachment of person working a corporate job in a studio who perhaps doesn't have that full an understanding of actually what it's like in the trenches for us as freelancers. My, my own metaphor for it is I think of the First World War and the, the general sending the troops over the trenches in the, in, in the into battle and the disconnect between knowing what it's actually like in the trenches versus being at the back of the line in the safety of the tent with the tea sending the, the, the troops out to die. Now, obviously, it's not as intense as that for us, but the, the metaphor is apt. And um, there's such a detachment and disconnect in that chain of people who have to be prepared to stand up and hold the line that it's a real problem with, with making the change. So in that sense, is striking the only option? Is that actually the only way that we make change? I mean, I can't vote, obviously. I'm not in your country. I'm not on the uh, IATSE scheme. But um, it does... You know, you, you shared that picture of the, I use the bug's life metaphor all the time as well when I'm doing talks over here with the union and talking to people. And um, the only way potentially change can happen is with that. So I guess I would be saying yes if it were something to do. But I fully understand that's a super difficult decision to make because everyone's perspective financially and with themselves and their position and their, their job is hugely personal and hugely difficult. I don't have kids. I might be thinking about it very differently if I had 
children in my life that I had to support. So yeah, that was kind of the follow-up response, but perhaps historically that is the way we, we make change. Yes. And I, I agree with all of that, especially going back to this idea of the people that are setting the schedules and the pattern budgets and everything else, they are part of the corporate structure and they don't really understand what it's like to be on the front lines. And I'm not going to say that across the board universally, because I actually know some people that I very much know and respect that have been on the production side that have moved to the studio side and they get it. And you know what they say? This is just what's handed to me. This is the budget. This is the schedule. And I have to find a way to make sure that my crews can make it work. The only reason that things are going to change is not better training or convincing the studio executives or the corporate people. Oh, you know what? It's, it's going to be better if you give them more space and time because the science says that you're more productive with more rest. Nobody cares. The only thing that's going to make things change is if we no longer meet the impossible expectations. We keep meeting them, so they just keep resetting those expectations. We essentially have been moving the goalpost for decades, and we've just gotten to the point, point where the goalpost is so far away and so impossible to meet that we're breaking, where every single person is breaking over and over and over, so they're realizing maybe we can't move the goalpost anymore. But I really believe that there's – I don't exactly know how the corporate structure works, but I think that there are even people in the corporate side of things setting these budgets that even they know it's not realistic. But as long as they keep meeting it and we keep saving money, let's just see how far we can push. Again, I'm not in the rooms. I'm totally speculating, and I don't know that for a fact. But I really believe that there are probably a multitude of people that may not be willing to admit it, but there are a multitude of people on the corporate side that even they know. This doesn't work, but the person above them said this is the way it has to be, and it all trickles down. Um, again, just my opinion. I don't know that firsthand, but that's, that's just kind of my feeling. Um, going back to the gallery, I saw a hand go up a while ago from Annie. Annie, I swear I did not forget about you. It is now officially your turn. So welcome. Hi. So my question is, do we know – I keep hearing the 75% number going around for strike authorization vote. Um, is, does that mean all 13 locals have to vote that, uh, that way? Really good question. And I'm totally going to butcher this because this is, again, not my area of expertise, but the best way I can explain it, because uh, I was explaining this to my wife the other day, um, it's very similar to like the electoral system that we have in the United States, where it's not a matter of we have, I don't know the exact number, let's, for the sake of math, we have 50,000 members in IATSE. And whatever 75% of 50,000 is, that's the number we need to hit. That is not how it works. Each guild has a number of delegates. And don't ask me the number of delegates. I have no idea. I don't get in the minutia of it. But just talking from a structural perspective, each guild has a number of delegates that's mathematically proportionate to the number of people. Just like with the Electoral College, California has a lot more electoral votes than Delaware. Right. So the Editors Guild and the Cinematographers Guild, we have a lot more people. So therefore, we have a lot more delegates. But ultimately, if the Editors Guild, let's say that 75.1 percent of the Editors Guild votes yes, that means that all of the delegates for the Editors Guild, and I don't know the number, maybe somebody else on the call can share it, um, but the number of delegates 100 percent votes yes. Right. So it's about how do we get 75 percent of the delegates I think. Actually, I think the number is lower with delegates. I think with the votes in each guild, it's 75%. But again, I don't want anybody to quote this part because I'm going to butcher the actual numbers. But structurally, it's really important to understand that it's about delegates. The reason it's so important is, again, it is a total waste of time at this point to scream from the top of the rooftops in the Editor's Guild Facebook page, we need to vote yes. 
because we're already confident. We got the vote three years ago. We're going to get it now. This is about reaching out to the other guilds and the other people that we know in our social circles, a lot of whom are not even that informed about what's going on because it's not about individual votes. It's not like, well, if we can get 100% of the vote in the editor's guild, that's gonna make up for 25 extra percent that we can apply to other guilds where they're gonna vote less. So it really is about how do we make sure that we get the majority from the other guilds that are right now gonna be on the fence. Yeah, right. I, I'm not worried about the editors you know, voting yes. It, you know, we, were, we were down for this fight in 2018. It's hard with, uh, we're so disconnected from production and the rest of the locals. Oh, anyways, that makes me nervous. Although I have noticed, you know, the friends I do have in production are talking about it now, you know, that weren't talking about it in 2018. Yeah. And that's, that's why I too, like going back to, uh, to Mitch's question, why I'm a lot more optimistic this time, because it's the same conversation across all the guilds. Again, there was so much infighting and so much attacking the, the editors three years ago. And by the way, can we just point out the irony of it's the quiet, introverted, meek little editors in their dark rooms that really were standing up for this fight three years ago? Like, really? Uh, it just I just find that ironic. I, I, I don't know. I just find that funny. Um, and I just got a comment and some uh, clarification um, from one of the members of the community that I was, in fact, wrong. And it's a simple majority as far as delegates are concerned. I know it's 75% for the votes within the guilds, but I guess it's a simple majority once we're talking about the number of delegates. So again, don't take my word as gospel. Do your research, look at IATSE, understand how all of it works, because um, I am not an expert on this side of things. Um, but I, I do know for a fact that it's based on a delegate system and not a simple 75% um, of all the people in IATSE, which is why it's so important to reach out to other people in guilds where they're on the fence. Um, so moving on, I do believe on that note, we have a point of view we can share from the other side of the line in that crazy world called production. Um, Sam, would you like to come forwards and share your perspective as a, an assistant director and uh, aspiring to director? Well, because I mean, I technically the production manager, the UPM is the line, right? So they, they sort of straddle the line. And I think more and more first ADs are also right at the line because, because we're in charge of safety on set, we have to worry about this stuff. Like we have to worry about crews getting tired, but at the same time, it's our job to finish the day. So we're always put in a really tough position too. And we don't want crews to work, you know, work into the ground at all. So, and you know, anything that the crew gets benefits us, benefits the directors, you know, the directors get a shorter day, we get a shorter day, but it just, it benefits everybody. and. Also having a crew that is happy. We all know anyone who works on a set who's worth anything knows how important a well-fed, well-rested crew is. Happy, participating crew. Because, you know, these are smart people. And I've seen grips give opinions and or notice things on set that a showrunner goes, oh, my God, thank you. You know, and we all need each other that way. So, yeah, I mean. For me, it's huge because I, I feel like I'm responsible for, I've seen it obviously for many years. This is, it's been awful. Um, just the hours and, you know, all of the stuff. And I think what you said is really, I think you're, what you said about the lunches and how that's a scare tactic is really valuable because it's, I, I was thinking that it was stupid because I was like, that's going to motivate everyone to, to want to strike, but you're right it actually will scare people, certain people. And like I had said, I think grips, electrics, props, those people who work, they want overtime. So the, the, 
The problem is getting them to vote against the interest of them making money. That's where it gets tough. You know, they want safe conditions and they want to get paid double time after 12, like they should, which is what they're also trying to take away. And but they want the hours. So it's kind of like it's, it's, it's difficult for them. Well, let me let me ask you this question to play the devil's advocate for a second, because I'm not uh, intimately familiar with the politics of a set. And I know the basics of how they run. But I spent, you know, two decades of my life by choice, not on set, because it's not uh, not a lifestyle that makes the most sense for my personality. But if I am a grip or I'm an electric or I'm a DP, anybody that's below the line, whether, you know, the lowest rung on the ladder or the toppest rung on the ladder, why are you as an assistant director or a director not looking out for me? Why are you making our days so long? Why are you cross-boarding the days in such a way that these expectations are impossible to meet? You're part of the problem. We have mandates that come down and, and basically, you know, we get given, just so everybody knows, especially on television, usually the ADs walk into an episode ready to prep and the UPM has already prepped a schedule and they sort of hand it to the AD and go, okay, now you can do your pass. So, you know, it's it's kind of like the director's cut, you know, they get to do a pass and they will tell you, like, we're cross-boarding. That's that's almost never an 80s decision or, they, you know, they'll tell you we only have this actor on this day. So we have to shoot a 14 hour day. You know, now there's bad ADs for sure that don't care. That's that's the problem, you know, like in every, any any um, area. Right. But any decent AD, like I said, they understand that you get more out of a crew anyway and and the fact that we're responsible for safety also pulls us in a cruise direction. You know, I don't want people falling off tailgates. I don't want people mistakenly backing up in, into, you know, fire potentially or something or off a stage. So, and it ha that stuff happens. That stuff doesn't get talked about because people just end up going to the ER, they get some workman's comp and it's over, right? But that happens all the time. The reason that I asked it that way is it kind of comes back to this conversation of misplacing our anger and our aggression. Right. Thinking it's our immediate supervisor that's pushing us, because I'm assuming as a first AD, you've had to push a crew to say, all right, guys, you know, it's going to be another 14 or 16 hour day. And for me to not understand the big picture, it's like, oh, my God, Sam is just she's pushing it. Why is she doing this? Right. But you have mandates from above. And I would guess that the buck does not stop even at the UPM. Correct. Oh, no. Of course not. The studio basically- They have mandates. Of course, yeah. And it, it comes from the people who are taking our rights away, essentially. Yep, exactly. Which is comes back to the main central point that the expectations that are being set are no longer realistic. We are not being valued and we cannot accept it, right? That's what it comes down to. And I just see so much misplaced aggression to the wrong people, um, whether it's a studio executive or a producer or whatever it is. And I feel like that has to stop. And another strategy that is just driving me crazy is all of this talk of let's cancel all of our streaming services. Like, really? Really? Like, do we think that's number one going to make a difference? And number two, is that even a good strategy? Let's assume that every single person in IATSE cancels their streaming services. And better yet, every single person in IATSE convinces their family to cancel their streaming services. Does anybody care on the studio or corporate level? Nobody's going to care. They're going to laugh at that. But what also happens is those that created the content, meaning us, meaning the directors, the producers, the writers, the showrunners, that's less residual money in their pocket, whether it's a pension and health plan or it's an individual check. So that's basically us just cutting off our nose to spite our face. So for anybody that's listening, that's like, oh, screw Netflix, we're going to cancel it. No, like really, you're it, no, really, really 
bad strategy. The way to stop it is to have the filming and production come to a grinding halt in unity. So that's what I think. I mean, I mean, I've, I've actually taken to, sorry, but I've taken to like, I run a safety meeting every morning, at, you know, or they don't even call it that anymore. It's just a morning meeting. And I tell everybody what we're going to do for the day. And I usually, if it's a crappy scheduled day, I will say, by the way, this crappy scheduled day is brought to you by unavailable actor or unavailable set. You know what I mean? Like, I don't blame somebody, but I'll explain it so people don't just think that we randomly did this or have our own evil purposes. Yeah. And that, that context is super, super important because when you uh, the difference is when it's us versus them versus we're all in this together, it changes the conversation. And my feeling is that everybody that's a creative, I don't care above the line, below the line or otherwise union or non-union as creatives, we are all in this fight together because it all comes down to how we are being valued. And all we need to do is stop meeting the impossible expectations and then they have to move the goalpost. That's really the only thing that changes. And it goes back to the thesis at the very beginning. We have a no vote. We're done. That's it. This, is, this isn't a matter of we're going to get 0.5% less than our scale, our next paycheck for the next three years until the next negotiation. The union, as we know it, is done. And again, it'll take a long time to dismantle, but this is do or die time. Because if they know we've been walking around for 50 years with an unloaded gun, the fight's over. Um, but Jeff, your hand went up and I want to make sure that your voice is heard as well. Well, thank you, Zach. I think uh, the conversation might need to be steered towards how they're scheduling the shoots and also the post schedules. That's why we're working these longer hours. You know, like I'm sure many of us here have been through this where, you know, you're excited to get on a project and let's say they're hiring the editor two weeks into shooting, but they're not adjusting their schedule. And they're like, well, if you want the job, you got to make it work. And, you know, I've been on plenty of tier zero projects where they're not, they're shooting, you know, IOTSI, but they're not DGA. So I don't even have that 10 week pad with my director to get the, the best product for them. So it's like, uh, you know, maybe this is too simple of an answer, but uh, maybe the conversation needs to be skewed that way. Yeah, I mean, I really think the conversation comes down to like, let, let's break it down um, to kind of the, the details on a more uh, ground level. Um, the argument that I hear over and over and over, and I don't look at all the spreadsheets, so I can't verify this, but the logic tracks that wouldn't it make more sense instead of working everybody 14, 16, 18 hour days, isn't it actually cheaper to just add more normal days? Like number one, you're gonna get more productivity, people are gonna be able to do better work and you don't have to pay the overtime. So the majority of shows that I've worked on for the last 10 years all work by that philosophy. One of the core questions that I ask when I'm on a show, do you pay overtime? And they always respond the same way, no, unfortunately we don't. I'm like, good. I want to be on shows that don't pay overtime because that means that if we can't meet your expectations, you just extend the deadline. I would rather work two extra weeks at regular pay than I would trying to crunch everything in, work late nights and long weekends, right? But it all comes down to we don't want to pay more money. We, don't, we just don't want to do it. We want to crank out the sausage as fast as humanly possible. And if that means that we're going to pay the individuals more money to get it done in less time, even if they literally can't survive, there are other people that are going to fill their positions. But it comes down to a lack of willingness to say, you know what, let's just extend the schedules. Again, it comes back to setting improper expectations. If that one fundamental thing changed, if whomever the, the person is that's pulling all the strings, whether it's at one of the studios or all of them simultaneously, or there's some mastermind, like I said, that's holding the jar and shaking it, whoever that, that person or people are, if they all fundamentally said, you know what, let's make the schedules longer 
and let's incur the fees necessary to make that happen, we all live in a completely different world. That's really what it comes down to. I don't know how to make that change other than what we're doing now. I don't know if that is going to be the change or if it's just going to be, you know what? You get X number of dollars for meal penalties now, fine, we'll double it. I still don't think things are going to change that much, right? And that's something I've been saying for years is that even if we do get a lot of the things that we want in this union contract, which we should fight for, this ultimately becomes a human issue and an individual issue. How willing are you to set boundaries to protect yourself? It really is going to come down to that because we can talk about um, union regulations and meal penalties and not allowed to have lunches or whatever. Um, but all of those things, a lot of them, like let's use uh, meal breaks, for example. Meal breaks are protected under union contracts, yet most people, at least I can speak firsthand from the editor side of things, they work through lunches routinely every single day. And the way that um, companies have gotten uh, – have been able to take advantage of that is they just buy the editor's lunches, right? Pretty simple. Um, so that's the way that they've gotten around it. So if somebody says, we need union protection to make sure we have our lunches, it's already there, right? H how do you fight for that? And that really comes down to individuals that are willing to set boundaries and make sure that these things don't continue to happen. But doing that one person at a time isn't working, which is why we need to collectively do it. Ricardo, jump right back in. It was, a, it was just a quick comment and question out to you guys as well with what you're working in. I, in the 10 years that I've been doing this in relation to what Jeff was talking about with scheduling and what you were just talking there about a human issue, then I'm 36 now. I started in this industry at 24. Uh, in just the 10 or 11 years I've been doing this, I'm seeing a shift in the younger generation coming in and the mindsets that they are coming in with and the attitudes they're coming in with as well. And I do feel there's a change in the wind that is a slow generational change, but eventually those people will be post-producers, producers, they will be putting those schedules together. They will be making those post schedules. And if they don't want to work those hours, then perhaps things will slowly change over the next 10 to 20 years. And I do think it will take that long, but I'm seeing trainees and seconds in my cutting rooms and other people's cutting rooms, standing up to people politely, respectfully, but I'm seeing it happen in a way that when I was a trainee, it didn't happen. It didn't get talked about. Is that the same for you guys on your side of the pond? Or, you know, what, what, what are you seeing? Uh, I would definitely agree that I see that. And uh, this is something that I've taken upon myself as a responsibility as somebody that now is um, not necessarily department head, but is, you know, an unofficial leader in the, the teams and the groups that I'm in, um, that I have to, especially both with uh, uh, the editing side of my life and also the optimize yourself entrepreneur side of my life, um, I have to make sure that I'm protecting people so that they can be in it for the long haul. Uh, I mean, I have uh, multiple members of my team that are on this call now. Um, I'll call one of them out, Glenn. Like Glenn is uh, amazing at what he does. And how many times, Glenn, have I yelled at you because you messaged me on the weekend? I'm like, dude, brilliant. Love all of it. Sleep and let's talk on Monday. Because I know that in the long haul, you're going to be worth more and more. You can provide more value to me and to the work we're doing if you take care of yourself. Same thing with Barry, my assistant editor on Cobra Kai. Um, I'll send her a message every once in a while. Uh, she may not be here anymore because she may have actually went back to work. I'm still here, but she went back to work. Oh, well, you are still there. You had your camera off. Um, but I'll, I'll say to her, like, here are all the following things we need to do. Do not by any means do any of this past whatever time you're supposed to be done tonight. Let's do it tomorrow. And I think that a lot more people are starting to do that. And I think that over time, as we continue, there is going to be that sea change that happens, but it's going to take, you know, another five, 10, 15 years for this to start becoming the norm. 
But again, coming back to the topic of conversation, if we don't get a yes vote now, then we're going to continue to be the vocal minority. Uh, and I want to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. But yes, I am definitely seeing it uh, personally. Um, I'm seeing it with the younger post producers that I'm working with where, and I think partly that's just by choice. I'm very selective about the people that I work with and I get a sense of, am I just going to be expendable and you're going to push me to my limits or do we actually care about each other? And when I get the the feeling based on the calendars or the schedules or otherwise, um, that I'm not really going to be valued as a human being, that's always a hard pass. I have turned down some really big shows. This is not me bragging or like sharing, like, but I've, I've been up for some really big shows that I've lately not even taken an interview because I know the people involved and I know that the way that they work their crews, I'm not going to be a part of it. But those no's open me up for opportunities like the one that I have now, knowing that I'm working with people that I love, that I respect, where there, yes, there are times on Cobra Kai, for example, where for four to six weeks, it is hell. It is so much overlapping episodes and work and it's tough, but we all love what we do and we're in it together. And we're like, all right, next four weeks is just going to be rough guys. Let's make it work. But we still respect each other. I have no problem with that. It's exhausting, but I don't resent it. I'm not depressed. I'm not burned out. I just need some sleep when I'm done. But it's when the, it's when we're treated as if it's just, it's all about you and you're weak and you can't do it. That's where I think the problem lies. And that is more coming from the older generation and the old guard, so to speak. And I am seeing that change. And I'm curious, bringing you back to the, uh, the gallery here, who else is starting to see that change on a more systemic level with some of the, the younger generations coming in? Anybody else experiencing this? So Mike's got his hand up. Uh, Jeff is seeing it. Sean is seeing it. Sam is seeing it. Part of the reason that I do what I do and we're on this call and we have this coaching program and we have the podcast is making it acceptable for the younger generation to set those boundaries and fight back and say enough is enough. I'm worth it. So I have always believed and when it comes to this fight, this is about um, we are uh, a guild and we are a union and we are fighting the AMPTP. I get all of that. But ultimately, I believe the only way things change is one individual at a time. And we all decide this is no longer acceptable and we have the tools to better manage our time and set better boundaries knowing that we have more worth. Because when we start to really respect ourselves, it's going to be a lot easier to allow other people to disrespect us. So that's kind of my big picture strategy. I don't, I don't make any secret about it, um, but it's like a, a multi-decade strategy. I always talk about playing chess instead of checkers. This is a really long chess game. I've already been playing it for seven years and I'm barely warmed up. I've moved like three pawns in the last seven years. I've got a whole lot of other moves um, in my back pocket. Um, but that's why we're here today. And I can see that the chessboard is getting a lot bigger, um, which is exciting because we have all these people here today. Um, all right. So then in that case, I am going to wrap it up. I want to thank everybody that is here today that took your time, your lunch break or whatever it might be to participate on this conversation. I want to thank everybody that is listening, anybody that is watching this. At the end of the day, this is not we all must vote yes. I want everybody to vote their hearts that's listening that can vote. If you feel that a no vote is right in your heart, I want you to vote no. But I want you to think about not only this is about me, but this is about how everybody else is treated. And can I honestly say, can I put my head on the pillow at night and say to myself, I feel that I and everybody that I work with is valued. If so, I want you to vote no. Otherwise, if you have a voting uh, ability, I want you to vote your heart and your conscience, knowing that I don't believe that we collectively are valued. If you cannot vote, which frankly is a lot of people that are on this call today, 
It is about spreading the word to get this in front of the right people so they understand what this conversation is about because there's a whole lot of misinformation about, oh, the people in Hollywood have no good, how good they have it. And it's so great to work in that industry and they're all just a bunch of whiny crybabies. We change that discourse, we're gonna make this sea change that we keep talking about. So the best thing we can do is just put the information out there so people really understand what this is about. And this is a much bigger issue than pensions and health plans and residuals and meal penalties. And this is just about being respected as human beings. Uh, so on that note, I wanna thank everybody for attending today, for listening today. Um, take care of yourself, stay healthy, stay sane and be well. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.